This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. So the big question that motivates my talk tonight is, what's next for feminism? In the last hundred years, feminism has created seismic shifts in nearly every domain of our lives. And yet, what is evident every time we turn on the news is that our work is far from done. And what I'd like to offer tonight is that the future of feminism, its fourth wave, is not about political equality for women. That, in fact, it's about something much bigger than that. But before I go into detail about what this much bigger feminism is about, and I have four key points that I'm going to make about what I see as a fourth wave of feminism. Before I go into that, I want to pause for a moment and dedicate my talk to the graduate students in the Women's Spirituality Program here at CIS. <laughs> you all have truly inspired my thoughts about the future of feminism. I've often heard it said that graduate students are the most often at the cutting edge of any given field, and I found that to be very true in our program. So one of my very favorite things about my job is reading applications from prospective students. Now, in addition to the usual things like submitting transcripts and academic writing samples, we ask our students to submit a spiritual autobiography that talks about why they're interested in being with us at CIS. The stories we hear are incredibly diverse as our students come from all walks of life, all ages, all ethnic backgrounds, religious identities, and as an online program all over the country and even the world. We have students who are newly out of college and those who have been in the professional world for decades. But there is an underlying current I read in all these autobiographies, and that is a deep sense that there is a radical dysfunction at the core of our society a deep dissatisfaction with the status quo. In these stories, I've read of women who have lived through or are continuing to live through the effects of sexual violence, domestic violence, racism, homophobia, poverty, religious oppression, and the list could just go on and on. Now I said the women who've entered our program because the majority of our students to date have identified as women but we do have students who've identified as men and as non-gender binary, so I want to make sure I note that as well. And also that when I, whenever I use women throughout this talk, that's inclusive of trans women because trans women are women. Um, and I want to share that the stories of the men who have applied to our program include coming into consciousness off, often through the women in their lives. And for those who are outside the binary, their story includes an understanding that there is something woefully missing in our simplistic division of the world into women and men. What inspires me about these autobiographies is that in the midst of the trauma and the oppression, students have found an anchor, a lifeline in feminism, in womanism, and in their own knowing that they are sacred. And what 
inspires me is that their sense of dissatisfaction with the way things are is surpassed only by a passion for the way that things could be. There is a deep commitment to radically shifting our way of relating with each other and with the earth. And I think the other reason that I love reading those applications is so much is that they bring me back to my own feminist origin story. And I think this would be a good place to share what we uh, in women's studies call standpoint. So I'm a first generation Indian American woman in my 40s. I'm cisgendered, heterosexual, middle class, educated, still paying off my student loans. <laughs> But part of what I want to share about my standpoint is that I'm a suffering human being, right? Like most human beings. And I share that because I came to feminism because I was suffering. Now, I had always con considered myself to be a feminist in the most basic sense of believing that women and men should be treated equally. But despite the sense, I lived for many years with a deep sense of unworthiness as a woman in a patriarchal culture. And this came from my cultural upbringing, this came from the media, this came from just walking in the world, right, being treated as, um, as less than. For years, I hated my body, I struggled with depression, I doubted my value, and my religion, I grew up Hindu, had me doubt whether I was as spiritually worthy as men. So I too, like the stories I've read, had my share of gender-based trauma. Reading feminist texts gave me a language for the pain and rage I was feeling and helped me see, intellectually at least, that it was society that was the problem, not me. So what did I do? I joined a PhD program in women's studies, and I thought that here is where that I had found um, a place to make sense of my suffering. And the theoretical empowerment worked for a little while and then it didn't, <laughs> right? Those feelings of unworthiness, of not being good enough, came back. And I remember this um, one evening, I was hanging out with one of my best friends in the program, and we were saying, you know, I don't get it. Like, we know that the media is brainwashing us, right? We know from having studied feminist theory that um, we patriarchy is having us women believe that there's something wrong with our bodies, and yet why can't we stop dieting, <laughs> right? Why can't we stop hating our bodies and, you know, um, racking our brains over our failed interactions with men? Um, and it struck me at that point that there, there was a disconnect, right, between theoretical understanding and actual, like, heartfelt experience. So I started embarking on my own spiritual journey, as those of you who are at CIS know very much about, <laughs> um, being on a spiritual journey, a healing journey, going to therapy, going to meditation groups. And so for quite a while, I actually found myself living a divided life. I was in a uh, very standard, secular, academic women's studies program. This was at the University of Washington. Um, and so during the day, I'd be reading about postmodern feminism, intersectionality theory, you know, prison industrial complex, all of these things that are like really great and really important. Yeah. And then in the evening, I'd go to my mindfulness class and I'd be taught how to watch my breath right? and how to put aside all of those thoughts, right? All of those thoughts about things that were going on in the world. And in my meditation classes, nobody ever talked about sexism or racism 
or any of the things that were going on in the world. Yeah. Um, and in my academic program, you know, even saying that you were spiritual or interested in it felt like a, a very embarrassing thing to admit. Um, so many years later, when I read Bell Hooks talk about how she felt like she was living in a spiritual closet because her peers at Harvard thought that spirituality was kind of a joke, you know, I was like, thank you, right? Thank you for naming that. Um, and then I decided to write my dissertation on spiritual activism. I would get these quizzical looks from people like, what, what? like religion? Like, don't we know that that's like the opiate of the masses? Right? Because feminism, or academic feminism at least, had become so taken in by this um, post-structuralist or Marxist theory that said that the only thing that exists is that which can be seen or measured. Okay? Um, and so one of the things that I want to argue today is that fourth wave feminists are coming out of the spiritual closet in a big way. Right? And insisting that feminism address our need for collective spiritual and psychological healing. So certainly we need political equality and political change, but just as deeply we need that spiritual and collective transformation. So before I launch into a discussion of fourth wave feminism, I need to say a little bit more about the first three waves of feminism. Now, some of you will be very familiar with this. For others, it may be new, so I'll give a brief overview. The first wave of feminism is typically referred to as the period in, during the late 1800s and early 1900s where the struggles were primarily around abolition and suffrage. The second wave is the 1960s and 70s, and that was the period that changed everything. It's when women started coming together in consciousness raising groups, articulating theories of patriarchy, recovering pre-patriarchal goddesses, naming the um, ubiquity of violence against women, founding women's shelters, talking about things like marital rape and date rape. So radical transformation of society. And then in the third wave of feminism, which is referred to as a period in the 80s and 90s, is when you have um, an increasing amount of complexity and intersectionality bringing, being brought into the discussion, as well as queer theory. And I want to talk especially about intersectionality, intersectionality because it is such a key idea. And intersectionality was a concept developed by legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw to address the fact that for black women, and that was primarily what she was talking about, we could not understand their experiences through the lens of primarily either just race or just gender, right? So black women's experience was different than a black man's experience and was different than a white woman's experience. We had to understand it as an intersection. And this theory has been taken up now uh, beyond the realm of legal studies, beyond the realm of looking at race and gender, even though those are still key, but also looking at things like class, gender identity, citizenship status, um, ability, disability, and so on and so forth, yeah? So even though um, the term intersectionality became popularized in the third wave, it was actually there all along if we look for it, right? So um, in Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman's Speech in the first wave of feminism, she was articulating intersectionality without using that word. The women of the Kambahi River Collective in the second wave were articulating a theory of intersecting oppressions, again, without using that word. Um, but it became more and more prominent in the third wave. And, and I think this is a really important thing um, that we need to continue into the fourth wave. 
And but because it's been so much already kind of addressed and talked about, uh, I'm not going to go into it at, at further length. But one of the things that I want to challenge is a narrative that's often out there about this antagonism between second and third wave feminists. Um, an author named Susan Faludi actually wrote an article called uh, Feminism's Ritual Matricide, right? That there's this constant like overthrow of, quote, the mother in feminism. And, and I want to say that there is a grain of truth to that. There have been conflicts between second and third wave feminists. So generationally, I'm a third wave feminist, and I've experienced some of those conflicts, uh, even here at CIS. But I think it's a very simplistic narrative, right? Because in addition to those conflicts, I've also seen an enormous amount of dialogue and learning um, among women who identify with the second wave and those who identify with the third wave. And I also want to acknowledge that everything that, um, that I take for granted today is because of second wave feminists. And so there is a continuity. Um, and I also think it's not necessarily just generational. Right. So when I talk about a fourth wave feminism, it's not about age. Right. It's more about a consciousness and where I think we're headed. And that the ideas that I'm talking about as being part of fourth wave feminism, they're not overthrowing third wave or second wave feminism. They're building upon. Right. And some of these ideas have been there, like I said, right from the beginning. But I think we need to amplify and strengthen them and come out of these closets. And as I talk about the previous wave of feminisms, I want to acknowledge that spirituality has always been a part of feminist movements, but I wasn't taught this when I was taught the history of feminism in my women's studies classes. So I call this the secret spiritual history of feminism. And when I say spiritual, I'm going to define that very simply as just a recognition that there's more than meets the eye, right? That there's a greater mystery out there. Um, that we are all radically interconnected in a very deep way with each other, with non-human animals, and with the earth. And that our spirituality is our personal cultivation with that mystery. Right. Um, well before the term feminism even came into the lexicon, um, women mystics were starting to articulate a new way of thinking. According to Gerda Lerner, who wrote, the creation of feminist consciousness, women mystics of the 14th and 15th century, according to her, developed a sort of proto-feminist consciousness. And she argued that while tradition and religion inculcated in women a deep sense of mental inferiority, mystical revelation provided an alternative mode of thought to patriarchal thinking. Right. And this is this idea that religious or spiritual experience offers an alternative mode of thought is very key to the spiritual aspect of feminism. Um, I mentioned earlier Sojourner Truth, an abolitionist and preacher. According to Helen LaCalle Hunt, it was a mystical experience that led her, to, led her to see God everywhere, realize that she needed to change her name to Sojourner Truth and go around the country preaching, right? and talking about um, the importance of abolition. In the second wave, you see the flowering of the women's spirituality movement, uh, the development of our women's spirituality program here at CIS, the recovery of pre-patriarchal goddesses, um, the recovery of women connecting to their body, to ritual, to each other. And this was an enormously creative period but unfortunately, it was met by incredible mockery, 
by more materialist-oriented feminists. Um, there is this great book out there, if you're interested in that sort of uh, conflict, called The Politics of Women's Spirituality. And in that book, there's a, the debate between Marxist feminists and spiritual feminists, where uh, this Marxist feminist said that women need to spend their time dealing with important political and social issues and not frittering away their time on the ghost dance, right? So not only is there like this mockery, right, of women's spirituality movement, but there's a, an unconscious racism there, right? Because ghost dances are associated with indigenous cultures. Um, so what I see as distinct about the third, about the fourth wave, is not that you know we've just invented spirituality, but that we're starting to come out of the closet about it. And part of that coming out of the closet, part of attending to our inner lives is about recognizing that we've all, pretty much everyone on this planet has been traumatized by patriarchy. So we're starting to see as this emerging spirituality, this discourse of healing justice, which insists that we need to address our collective wounding while we're working on systemic change. And I wanna acknowledge here the work of um, queer women of color, uh, particularly Kara Page and the kindred, of the Kindred Southern Healing Collective uh, who's defined a model of healing justice that's been used by Black Lives Matter. Um, another healing justice activist, Leah Lakshmi Peepsna Samarasinha, talks about healing justice as the following. Core to my understanding of healing justice is the idea that trauma didn't have to be a secret, something shameful and personal to never be dealt with, but that many, if not most, people are survivors of trauma from abuse and oppression that we often come to movement spaces hoping to heal the trauma through doing freedom work and that the work itself could reactivate trauma. So what does healing justice look like in the feminist movement? Some of it looks like self-care, right? We talk a lot about self-care these days. Um, you know, yoga, mindfulness, all of these things are burgeoning uh, multi-million dollar industries. But oftentimes that sort of self-care is still very individualized and commodified. So healing justice looks like not just taking the time for our own self-care, but insisting that our movements practice community care, right? That in Audre Lorde's work, words, that we, she says we need to continuously practice how to be tender with each other until it becomes second nature. Right. So in, in many ways, I would argue that Audre Lorde is really the grandmother of the healing justice movement. Um, it looks like reclaiming our wisdom traditions, right? And practicing them, you know, in the park, not just at expensive yoga studios, right? It's about insisting upon our healing. It's about disability justice and access, right? And it's also just about setting boundaries, right? The way that I practice healing justice is sometimes is by turning off my computer, by saying, no, I can't attend that meeting, you know? Um, no, I'll, well, I don't respond to emails on the weekends, you know? Um, it's advocating for our working conditions within organizations where we're doing feminist and anti-racist and other social justice work, right? Because oftentimes, in those very in those very types of organizations where people end up reproducing these really dysfunctional systems of how we treat each other and treat ourselves. 
And bringing healing justice into feminism is about reclaiming ourselves as sacred, because one of the most pernicious effects of patriarchy has been to convince women, to convince LGBTQ people, to convince people of color or the differently, um, the disabled, is that they're less worthy or less sacred. So I think this focus on healing justice is one of the huge shifts for fourth wave feminism. And a related shift I see is this embrace of the concept of spiritual activism. Right. So spiritual activism is this idea that our spirituality is not just about finding relief from the world. Right. So those meditation classes that I went to back in the day, yeah, they, they were great. They helped me kind of bring calmness to my mind for periods of time. But ultimately, spiritual activism says that we have to bring um, whatever we're learning through our spiritual practice into the way that we relate to each other. Right? We have to look at issues of racism and sexism and classism and disability within our spiritual communities. Right? And we can't insist that they're separate. And it's not just about waiting for whether it's heaven or nirvana or some sort of um, endpoint out there, but about bringing that consciousness right here into the world that we live in. So there's a lot. Um, that's similar to the concept of integral philosophy as Sri Aurobindo articulated it, is that we're trying to create that sort of, quote, heaven on earth, right? Um, and the other really key concept in spiritual activism is that our activism needs to move beyond simple us-them thinking, you know? It's beyond, like, I've been to so many protests where it's just like, F them and F the current president, you know? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I'm angry at them too, right? But, um, but is that really like shifting our consciousness? Um, and how do we move beyond, you know, what Marianne Williamson calls an overly secularized politics? And I'm, I'm very excited about her candidacy. I'm not up here endorsing anybody, but um, because I think she's bringing in this sort of fourth wave feminist consciousness into the public sphere in a way that we haven't seen before, right? She's just like speaking her truth. She's saying, you know, we need to, She's talking about real political things, like we need reparations, right? And it's really interesting how the media doesn't, instead of talking about that, they'll want to talk about, oh, she wears crystals, right? <laughs> or, oh, she lights incense, right? And so, you know, um, spiritual feminism or spiritual activism has always had a really deep political component, but it becomes easy to dismiss when people kind of glom on to some of these superficialities. Um, and ultimately, spiritual activism about th is about this idea that consciously cultivating our capacities for wisdom, love, and compassion, we can both, through consciously cultivating those capacities, we can both sustain our efforts for social change and ensure that our means of action are consistent with the ends we want to achieve. Um, and one of my other uh, spiritual teachers that I really like, Reverend Michael Bernard Beckwith, talks about kind of having come to that um, realization through the anti-racism work he was doing um, decades ago and looking around the room and just it kind of came to him that if the people who were uh, at the bottom of the struggle, if, if they had overthrown the powers that be, realizing that they would just be reproducing, right, the very same system. Right? So we could change the gender of who's on top of the hierarchy. We can change the race um, in, in theory, right? But unless we actually change that fundamental consciousness of domination, 
we're not really changing things far enough. So my first point was that, you know, feminism is not just about equal political rights for women, right? It's definitely about that, but it's also about a collective spiritual and social and um, psychological transformation. And one of the sites where we most need the psychological um, and spiritual transformation and healing justice is in the healing of the gender wars, right? So that brings me to the second point that I wanted to make about fourth wave feminism is that fourth wave feminism is not only about women, but is about healing and transforming our systems of gender relations. Now, again, this is not new. Um, I think feminists for decades have been saying that it's about dismantling patriarchy. And when I use the term patriarchy, I'm not just talking about a system of men over women, right? I'm also talking about a system of white supremacy, about the concentration of power and wealth in the hands of the few. Um, Elizabeth Schistler Fiorenza calls that hierarchy <laughs> um, rule of the masters or the elite. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and use the word patriarchy because it's more well known, but just to, I'm really referring to all these systems of domination, right? So I think for decades we've known that feminism is about dismantling that and not just about women, but I think in our popular discourse, feminism becomes conflated with just being about women, right? And so although women um, have been the ones at the forefront of the movement, it's really a movement for people of all genders. And we absolutely have to include the voices of people across the gender spectrum. And as we do that, I'm not just talking about, you know, trans or non-gender binary identities, which are very important and which I will talk to um, more about in a minute. But I also argue that we have to deal with what I call the man question in feminism. <laughs> So from the 1400s to the 1700s in Europe, there was this idea uh, called the, quote, woman question, right? And basically, this was a debate among intellectuals that was like, do women really have a brain? Like, are women rational enough to enter public life, right? And this was a question. Um, but I think we have kind of a parallel in feminism, which I call the man question. And is that, do men really have a soul? <laughs> And, and we don't mean that literally, and I don't, I don't think many like feminist women would, um, would admit to thinking that, but I think privately amongst ourselves and from, from the laughter I hear, <laughs> I, I think I'm not alone in just sort of, sometimes we just like have looked at each other and like, gosh, what is the role of men in feminism, right? Um, and we've seen these books like Hannah Rosen's like The End of Men, you know, that it's all about getting women into positions of power. And yeah, absolutely, we need more women in positions of power. But, um, but, you know, I think we need to take more seriously the feminist adage. You know, we've long said that patriarchy hurts men. But I think it's time we need to integrate that insight in a much deeper way. And I want to speak again here very personally. Um, about three and a half years ago, I came to the work of an organization called Gender Equity and Reconciliation International. And what we do in our organization is we bring women and men together in these really beautiful and very intensive dialogues around what does it mean to be a woman in a patriarchal culture, right? What does it mean to be a man in patriarchal culture? And for anyone who identifies as non-gender binary, what does it mean to, to have that identity in a world that's so committed to this binary, right? And what I realized through doing this work is that I had an empathy gap for many years, right? Because all of my studies were focused on, 
you know, anti-racism, anti-sexism, anti-homophobia, anti-ableism. And I absolutely believe in those things, right? But it became easy to actually, without even noticing it, to start othering cisgendered heterosexual men, particularly if they were white and had any class privilege, right? It's easier to see the suffering of black men and, you know, the prison industrial complex and and the racial profiling, right? Um, but white men have all the power, right? And so what I what I came to see is that um, I somehow didn't think that they, you know, that if you cut them, they bled as deeply, you know? And I saw this play out in my personal relationships with men, right? Thinking I could be a little harsher, right? Um, kind of punching back. Not, not literally. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, through arguments or, or just words that I used. And it was through this process of being in circle and hearing men talk about their stories that I had a revelation, right? And that revelation was that we need to hear men's stories, right? And when I, you know, the first time I articulated that, I thought, well, like, hasn't it all been his story? Like, isn't that history, right? And in women's studies, we used to say that, you know, um, like people used to say, why don't we have men's studies? Well, the rest of the university is men's studies, right? Because men have dominated the fields of philosophy and anthropology and psychology and you know history. And there's truth to that, right? But the thing is, the stories that we've heard of men in those fields have been the heroic stories, right? The stories of men as conquerors, as dominators, right? And yes, we absolutely have needed counterpoints to those stories. You know, but we've not truly heard the stories of the times from when the age of three or four, boys were told to shut that, down their tears to toughen up to, quote, be a man. There are stories of the brutal bullying so many men have experienced in childhood for showing any sign of weakness. The ways in which patriarchy asks men to make a deal with the devil where they have to trade in intimacy and connection for privilege. The stories who, of boys who have been sexually abused and even sexually abused by mothers right? Um, the men who've been raped in war. I recently read an article about um, a man who was raped in a wartime and was left by his wife for not being, quote, a real man. The stories of men who are struggling with isolation and depression, killing themselves with addictions, are literally through suicide. And men kill themselves at a rate of 3.5 times more often than women do. So I think that, you know, what happens is that when we begin to, when women hear these stories and when men are allowed to share these stories also in the presence of other men, is that their allegiance to the patriarchy starts to crumble, right? And not all men are willing to do that work. And, you know, not all women are either, right? There's people of all genders who just don't want to go there, right? But for me personally, um, it was, it, it was a, it's been a revelation to realize how much pain and wounding there is um, in the male experience, particularly in the socialization process, uh, as boys are taught to go through becoming men. And feminists, I feel like we've given lip service to this for decades, but you know we haven't taken up things like male circumcision as part of our agenda to challenge, right? Um, or so many of the things that men experience. Um, so I think we desperately need avenues for men to be part of the movement, right? 
um, many who are ready to be part of the movement. And it's really the only way that patriarchy will be dismantled. And I, I think the good news is that we're seeing a larger and larger number of men coming forth. Um, there's organizations like the Mankind Project, you know, Tony Porter's A Call to Men. Uh, I just looked at the, at the bookstore the other day. Michael Kaufman wrote a book about how men need to be part of the gender equality movement. And I think as we, we recognize that men need to be part of the movement, we, re, we need to also acknowledge that um, there are going to be missteps, right? There are going to be times when, you know, they say the wrong thing. <laughs> Call a woman a girl, right? And, and we can gently, like, we can speak back to that. But it's the same as, you know, with women doing to each other because we have missteps, right? And we say the wrong things. Right? We make ableist comments or we make, you know, comments that just don't realize the diversity of experience that everybody has. Um, and fundamentally, we have to challenge the lie that patriarchy works for men, right? And that women and men are opposites, that there are only two genders, right? And that we're rivals. So that's one of the gender wars, <laughs> big one, um, that I think we need to address as part of fourth wave feminism. But the under, other gender war that I want to talk about is that between cis women and trans women. And I want to name that I'm deeply indebted to the work of trans women scholars and activists like Julia Serrano, Laverne Cox, um, both of whom have spoken here at CIS and many, many more. You know, as a cisgender woman myself, um, I certainly don't have all the answers. Um, and so I rely upon the work of these, uh, these women to teach me. And we know the culture is shifting, and, but we know that it's still a very hostile place, by and large, for those who cross the gender binary or choose not to be defined by it. And so I want to speak a moment for why I'm talking about trans women, especially, and not um, trans men. And and this was really an insight that I got from Julia Serrano is that, you know, within particularly feminist communities um, and especially lesbian feminist communities, she argues that there has become more and more acceptance for transgender men, but not that same acceptance of transgender women. And that in itself is a form of sexism, right? Um, and, you know, in the second wave of feminism, there were some lesbian feminists who wrote texts that that were strikingly denigrating toward transgender people. Uh, according to Serrano, they argued that we propagated sexist stereotypes and objectified women by attempting to possess female bodies of our own. So um, there's been this deep rift or deep distrust. And it's, you know, it's not all cis women and all, not all trans women, because I think there's a lot of allyship happening too. Right. But we've seen like through things like the Michigan Women's Festival, which was that infamous festival um, where you had to be a woman born woman in order to attend. That the usual argument for exclusion in those types of cases is that by virtue of being having assigned male at birth, trans women have, quote, male energy that contaminates women's space. Right. This is like the, quote, penis issue. Right. And the reason I wanted to talk about the way that we other men first before I talked about the gender wars between trans and cis women is because I think they're very much connected. Right? Because as long as women think that there is something um, inherently dangerous about having XY chromosomes, 
or about having a penis, right? This distrust of, of women who are women, but have been, of have um, XY chromosomes, uh, that distrust of the male will carries over, right? Um, and I think one of the things that that does is that actually erases the fact that cis women can be violent too, right? That we can be abusive toward men, toward sons, toward partners. And so just having, um, I will say, not a women-only space, an XX chromosome-only space does not ensure safe space, right? And so uh, we, what we need to do is actually listen to and acknowledge the stories of those um, across the gender spectrum, because in my learning, the experience of trans women is much more about being bullied and shamed for showing femininity in male or groups of boys than it is about male privilege. And on the other hand, you know, I think I, we absolutely need to be trans inclusive, but I think we need to do that without silencing cisgender women from naming our body parts and reclaiming those body parts. Uh, we're seeing at some colleges across the country um, that people are trying to ban the vagina monologues, right? Because there's this idea that anytime you talk about body parts, such as wombs or vaginas, that you're essentializing women and reducing us to those body parts. But for women who for millennia, right, have been deeply denigrated for having these bodies, right? It's such a key component of our empowerment to be able to name and reclaim and perform, right? And celebrate these bodies, right? So what I'm arguing, we need to be able to celebrate cis women's bodies and trans bodies. It doesn't have to be an either or sort of a thing. You know, and here in the Women's Spirituality Program, we're very much about um, images of female deities. And I know for me personally, as a feminine identified woman, not just female, but feminine, it's been in incredibly empowering to walk into an office you know, and see female deities all around me. But we now know that and across every culture has also had transgender deities, right? So it's not about taking down the female deities, it's about also adding in the gender crossing, the gender neutral, the androgynous, or the gender transgressive deities and mythologies and stories, right? So it's becoming about both and, not either or. And this, um, this, I see that as part of the general um, patriarchal culture is the sort of either or thinking, right? If we're trying to raise up one group of people, we have to put down another group. My first point was that if we're not just about, fourth wave feminism is not just about political equality, right? It's also about spiritual and psychological collective healing. It's not just about women, right? It's also about men and non-gender binary and trans individuals. Now, my third point is that feminism of the fourth wave is not just about humans, <laughs> right? The Amazon is burning, <laughs> right? And why, there's many reasons, right? But one of the reasons is that the land is being cleared to graze cattle for beef, right? because of our societal addiction with animal products and the consumption and exploitation of non-human animals. And when we, there's some scholars when we look at it historically that have demonstrated that um, the domestication of animals 
went hand in hand with control of women's reproduction and control of women, right? It's no coincidence that the word husband and husbandry sound so much alike, right? And that the, the exploitation of non-human animals has often served as a template for the commodification and exploitation of women, of people of color. Um, the work of black feminist vegan scholar Abreese Harper looks at how things like, you know, this rhetoric that non-human animals don't really feel pain, right? It's the same rhetoric that's been used to talk about black folks, right? Don't feel as much pain. Um, how about how women's pain is not taken as seriously, yeah? Um, and I came across a new word um, recently, and I, I think I'm understanding it correctly. It's anthronormative, right? And it was by this queer vegan scholar named Simonson. And so it's this idea that it's considered queer or unusual to love animals, right? And I know so many people, um, including students that I've talked to in this room, who have this deep love and affinity for their companion animals, right? And yet we, we, we're not allowed to talk about that, right? The way that we talk about the love for other human beings. Um, and we're not allowed to actually look at the fact that it's that that same love for dogs or cats need not be any different than loving cows and chickens and pigs, right? And thinking about um, how it is that they're being used in our lives, right? We all kind of know about the factory farming system, right? But I have yet to see any collective feminist outrage, right? There have been eco-feminists, a few, a handful, like Carol Adams and Lisa Kemmerer, who have been drawing these articulations between the exploitation of women, particularly the exploitation of um, the reproductive capacities of dairy cows, right? Who are lined up in stations, which activists refer to as rape racks, right? And, and there's this distancing that happens, right? Um, and, you know, just the other day, I was at a, um, an event to protest the the immigrant detentions, and the speaker kept talking about they're treating them like animals. You know, people are being rounded up and treating, being treated like animals. And I hear this over and over again, right? And I understand the outrage that um, that motivates that statement, right? Um, and I'm not saying that human beings and animals like are the same, or that you know there are we have different needs, right? And so there are different ways that you would treat them, but. This idea that it's okay to treat animals like, quote, animals, you know, is actually at the root of our system of domination. Right? This idea that you can tr turn a sentient being into a commodity, right, is what motivated slave trade, you know, trafficking in women and girls. And so I believe that it's time that we start to really develop um, a consciousness that our movements for our understanding of intersectionality, or I'll use the term here, interconnected oppression, which I get from Lisa Kemmerer, which is not so much about our particular identity or the intersections, but how different forms of oppression are connected, is that as we talk about racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia, we need to bring speciesism into our conversation. And one of the results of not doing that 
is what you see today is this complete lack of awareness about what we're actually doing to the earth, right? And our, um, the killing that we're doing of non-human animals is kind of biting back, right? Um, through climate change, through global warming. So the third point that I wanted to raise is that fourth wave feminism recognizes that human and animal oppression are intertwined and advocates for the liberation of all beings. And this includes a difficult and very painful look sometimes at how our own daily practices of consuming animals for food, clothes, entertainment, etc., perpetuate such oppression. Um, and that recognizing that in order to heal our ecological crisis, we have to heal our relationship and how we relate to non-human animals. And you know, many of our ancestral traditions understood this. Indigenous peoples saw um, animals as relatives, right? In my own tradition as a Hindu, um, we saw the cows as considered one of our mothers, right? It wasn't considered an odd thing to say that. And finally, the fourth point I wanna share about fourth wave feminism is that fourth wave feminism harnesses imagination desire, and love to envision and co-create the world we want to live in, right? We have to come, we have to stop some of this like call out culture and constant critique. When I was um, an advanced graduate student, you know, we used to play games about sometimes how many times a person would use the word problematic in a graduate school class. (laughs) Because it seemed like that was what we were tasked to do, right? And, and I'm not saying we need to like not have critical thinking, right? We, we need to maintain critical thinking. But it, get to, it got to the point where um, this is just this constant search for ideological or philosophical purity, right? That you could never quite feel comfortable saying anything. You know, there's this an amazing um, article written in Yes Magazine by a queer activist of color named Frances Lee, and they wrote an article called Why I Am Starting to Fear My Fellow Social Justice Activists, right? So this person was about as radical as they could get, as you could get, and they're talking about being afraid, right? Because the one wrong word slips out of your mouth, and People on Facebook, I'm looking at a student right now because we've had this conversation, right, about the the fights on Facebook and on social media um, and the constant tearing down and cutting down. So how do we start to move, you know, outside of this um, culture where activists or so people on the left are tearing each other down? And I think part about that is about drawing upon our imagination. I recently came across um, a book that I was really excited about called The Feminist Utopia Project by Alexandra Brodsky and Rachel Nailbuff. And they ask questions like, in a feminist utopia, how would we talk about sex? How would we have sex? What would feminist mental health care look like? What would a day in the life of a woman with disability look like? What would a trans-inclusive legal system look like? Right? And I want to add to their list, what would racial healing look like, right? What would land rights and sovereignty for indigenous people look like? What would it mean to have a transformed economic system? What would our childhoods be like? What would masculinity look like, right? So I think we need to spend just as much time as we do critiquing 
you know, and, you know, in my line of work, I, I do a lot of that critique too, right? I just critiqued our ecological system and our use of non-human animals. But we need to spend an equal amount of time envisioning, right? What would healthier systems look like? Um, and not only do we need to ask these questions, we need to pay attention to the sites where such shifts are happening, right? I think CIS is one of those sites. It's not perfect, right? But sometimes we need to kind of turn off the, the constant deluge of scary news, right? Um, and look, at, look to places where racial reconciliation is happening, where people are organizing for reparations, where people are creating gift economies, uh, where they're doing the work of gender reconciliation, you know, restorative justice. Uh, I recently read an article, another article in Yes Magazine titled How the Women of Standing Rock Are Building Sovereign Economies. And the article was looking at how the Standing Rock protests helped water protectors get clearer on the need for sustainable sovereign economies. And just a few months ago in June, a gathering of 100 Women, both indigenous leaders and non-indigenous allies, came together on the Black Hills, South Dakota, to plan their next steps, right? So we don't see that in CNN, right? We don't see that when we're scrolling through Facebook and everyone's upset and angry about what's happening, right? So not that we want to, like, turn a blind eye to um, the things that are happening. Like, I'm, I'm horrified by what's happening in the detention centers. But we need to look at you know, the good that's emerging, right? The increasing numbers of women, women of color in positions of power in Congress. Um, and we need to sit together in circles and dream, right? And talk about what the world is that we wanna create. Um, we, want, we need to practice what Joanna Macy calls active hope, right? So passive hope is, oh God, I really, you know, it'd be so nice if things got better. Wouldn't it be great, <laughs> right? And she says, active hope is what happens when you take steps to create shifts, right? But you do that with a hopeful energy, right? Knowing that the seeds that you're planting will give fruit one day, maybe not even in your lifetime, right? But that's what she means by active hope. So um, to close, I'd like to say that no, fourth wave feminism is not just about political equality for women, right? It's about something much bigger. It's about a complete large-scale transformation for people of all genders and our relationship with the earth. And as we all think about what we can do to bring about this fourth wave, I suggest we pay more attention to our inner lives. We find spaces for community healing, right? We consciously seek to enter into dialogue with around racial reconciliation, gender reconciliation, understanding trans and non-gender binary experiences. We actively bring non-human animals and the earth into our sphere of care. And we spend time daily envisioning and then acting toward the world we want to create. So thank you again for your time and for being here tonight. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu podcast. <laughs>